Welcome to another KGLP Black History Month special. I'm Rachel Cobb. Last Wednesday, UNM Gallup hosted a virtual talk by New Mexico State Representative Pamela Herndon of District 28, where she represents the constituents of Bernalillo County, including Albuquerque. Ms. Herndon is an attorney experienced in multi-million dollar budget management and operations and is a graduate of Howard University in Washington, D.C. She has served as the executive director of the Southwest Women's Law Center and KWH Law Center for Social Justice and Change in Albuquerque. She also served as a deputy cabinet secretary for Governor Bill Richardson during his administration from 2009 until 2011. The Black History Month celebration with Representative Herndon was sponsored by the UNM Gallup Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, moderated by L.D. Lovett, director, and Dr. Okanor of the Charlie Morrissey Foundation. The introductory portion of this presentation is of lower quality due to technical difficulties. My journey to social justice is a journey that actually began when I was in elementary school. During that time, there was a man that you all may be familiar with and that you will recall, whose name is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So he was an incredibly uh, big influence upon my life during the time when I was younger. So I remember sitting in the, the early grades in elementary school when it was announced that he died that he shot. And I remember thinking, this is not good. Uh, He was a great influence on the country. And that evening when I went home, there was a news story that was talking about the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the way in which his life had been shortened. And the man who was doing this news story was a man by the name of Peter Jennings. He had a program called Peter Jennings with the News. And with respect to uh, that program, I was sitting there as a as an elementary student, just watching this story and thinking that I was going to be the next person to step up and 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 help this country move forward in the way that we needed to do. So I, I had to set out a plan, and the plan was first to go to college and then to go to law school. And with respect to that that college, where was I going to go? And the so. What you don't know about me is I grew up in a place called Corpus Christi, Texas. And in Corpus Christi, Texas was very much like uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. There were not very many African-Americans in the city where I grew up. And I had to think, what was I going to do? There had not been a great deal of African-American influence on my life other than my family's. So the decision was made to go to an African-American or Black university uh, college and to get my initial education there. And so I did, I went to a place called Howard University. It's located in Washington, DC. And there I got to do some amazing work. I got to work with a man named Congressman Lewis Stokes. And I don't know if you've been able to learn about him, but Congressman Lewis Stokes was one of the first people who actually formed the new, the Congressional Black Caucus. And as a part of that, I was an intern in his office. And as a part of working in his office, I was able to travel to his home state of Ohio and work and engage with a man by the name of who was was the first man to uh, serve as the treasurer for the state of Ohio and um, uh, for the city of for the city of Cleveland, rather, in the state of Ohio. 
And so as I work with James, uh, his name was James, uh, I'm trying to think of his last name. I think it was Lewis, if I have the name, the name correctly. And he was a, a great influence on my going to uh, be a part of going into accounting. And accounting was what I decided to major in at Howard. So as I was first starting there, I was I was I was unsure if I should go into political science or if I should do something else. But accounting and the work in math actually intrigued me a great deal. And uh, after going to Howard, working with the congressman and graduating with a degree in accounting from Howard, then the next step was for me to go to law school. And so in going to law school, I had to determine what law school was I going to go to. And doing some research on the state of Texas and what that looked like, I can truly tell you that the steps that came to me was doing during my research on a man by the name of Heman Sweat. So do I have the ability now, Dr. Lovett, to share my screen? Um, or me, is that going to create too many problems? You know, let's just go ahead and- I'll uh, just talk. Don't worry about it. We'll do it without the PowerPoint. I'll just, I'll just have the conversation. So then I, as I did some research on a man named Heman Sweat, he was trying to go to the University of Texas, but he was unable, he was unable to get in because there was a law in place called separate but equal. So that if there was a way for African-Americans to get the same education or to do anything the same, even though um, it, it may not have necessarily been the same, then African-Americans were, were guided in that direction. So in my case, there was a school called Texas Southern University in Houston, Texas. And so they did have a law school, but Heman Sweat wanted to go to the University of Texas. And the big reason was, is the difference in the, in the assets and the resources that were available at the University of Texas that were not available at Texas Southern. Texas Southern was built in a small, in a, it was in a small basement of a building and it had just a few books on the bookshelf. Well, the University of Texas School of Law was quite vast, quite big and had huge resources. So Heman Sweat decided to take his case all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And when he did, the Supreme Court said, you know what, Heman Sweat, we believe in you. We believe you should go to the, to the University of Texas. And I'm gonna tell you how this story continues to fold out for me. So then Heman Sweat was admitted to the University of Texas. And if, when, and if you have an opportunity to talk to others who've gone to law school, the way in which you grow as a lawyer is to be able to talk about the cases that you read and about the stories that you are encountering that engage law. And if you don't do that, it's hard to really understand the, the reasoning behind all of what happened. So Heman Sweat was admitted to the University of Texas, and then he was not able to sit in the classroom. The teachers made him sit outside the classroom. There was nobody to engage with him with conversations when he would read the law books. So it was a very disappointing uh, experience for him. So, so Heman Sweat ultimately left, and he didn't go to the University of Texas. And he didn't graduate from that law school. He did, he was entered, but he didn't graduate. So I decided that I was gonna to go to the University of Texas and I was going to graduate in the name of Heman Sweat. So that's exactly what I did. I went to the university, I applied, I was admitted. I did engage with many people. And I, not only that, but I was also admitted to one of the most prestigious honor societies at UT. And that was the Friar Society. 
So my life and journey as a social justice person had begun from the time when I was young and in, in elementary school, and now I was in law school. And so what was I going to do next? Well, let me tell you what I decided to do next. So now remember, I'd gone to Howard University and I had a degree in accounting. So the next thing was I needed to get my certified public accounting certificate. But at that time, you had to work within a CPA firm. So I applied to and was accepted to work in a company called Deloitte Haskinson Sales. That was one of the big eight accounting firms uh, throughout the country. Now they're known as Deloitte and Touche. And so I requested to work in the tax department rather than the audit department, and I did. And I worked there for the requisite number of years that you need to work in one of those accounting firms. And I did auditing also because they gave me auditing assignments, which were required. I ultimately took the CPA exam and I did pass it. And I also worked for the Internal Revenue Service after that because I wanted to work in tax. I had done so beginning in, in uh, the Lord Haskins and Sales. And you're saying, well, Pamela, how does all this work with social justice and how are you bringing this together? Well, let me tell you, as I was at the Internal Revenue Service, one of the things that I saw was an incredible number of businesses that were owned by people of color who were losing those businesses because they weren't paying FUTA or FICA taxes. And so one of the things that I began to talk to businesses about is you have got to save and you've got to pay these taxes. You shouldn't be working for your entire life and lose a business because you haven't paid a certain business tax. So that was one way in which my social justice work continued to roll out as a part of my, uh, my work with the Internal Revenue Service. And also there was a, a, a law that was passed that talked about uh, the division of property and how property could be given when there was a divorce among, uh, among people who had been married. And so what I began to see is that when there were divorces and women had primarily stayed at home, what the husbands were doing were giving the wives the, primarily the, the property that was taxable. So by the time they paid the tax on it, they really didn't have uh, access to the great number of uh, the great number of resources that they were expecting to receive as a result of the divorce settlement. So I began to have that conversation with women saying, you have got to talk about what kind of property you're receiving in a, in a divorce situation. So my social justice work there then spread out to include women. And I, I was really happy to have these conversations so that people were thinking a, lo a lot stronger about how their presentations and how their resources would look. So I worked in that area uh, for a number of, of years, um, uh, doing both litigation work. The last uh, position that I had was as a senior trial attorney with the Internal Revenue Service. And I was living in New Mexico uh, at this point in time, but the district council office in New Mexico was closed because President Carter and his vice president, Al Gore, decided to reinvent government and condense all of these businesses. So I flew back and forth between Albuquerque and Phoenix, which was the closest district council office that remained open to continue my tax work. And um, you know what? One day I heard my son talking outside and he said, I wish my mom were home more often. And I said, that's enough. I'll just stop doing this work because my family is more important than the work that I was doing at that point in time. So I went to work for a woman by the name of Patricia Madrid. 
and working for her in the attorney general's office in the litigation department. And as a part of that work, I was able to look and look at what was happening with respect to individuals, for example, who were previously incarcerated, but who wanted to, who wanted to be engaging work after they had fulfilled their time and uh, their sentence engagement. And so there's something called a Criminal Offender Rehabilitation Act that allows uh, individuals who had been previously incarcerated to actually be able to get a professional license and to move forward with their lives. So in working as a part of the licensing bureau that was included in the litigation department, I was able to, to actually help a couple of people to get those professional licenses under the auspices of that act. And uh, after a man by the name of Bill Richardson became the governor of the state of Texas, I then worked in his administration, working as a, as first as a general counsel and then as a deputy cabinet secretary, continuing to make sure that I'm reaching out to the community and making sure that our communities are engaged in all that our government has to offer. So I stayed there until Bill Richardson and, uh, was termed out of office. And then I went into some social justice work, some additional social justice work focused again on women. And in 2017, I was a part of a group of women that helped to pass something called the Fair Pay for Women Act. And as a part of that act, women are now required to be paid equal to any, any man who's doing the same or similar job. And that act is on the, on the books right now. And it has been tested in court on more than once. So it is a very strong piece of legislation that is really helping to advance the causes. But I want you to know that just because it's called the Fair Pay for Women Act, it also applies to men. So I keep telling them that over and over again. And so that uh, we want to make sure that people are, are paid equally for the work that they do. So as a part of my work also in my social justice work, I continue to do uh, work on the rights of children, particularly children who were being born of women who were incarcerated. And it's really important for women, for children to be able to breastfeed, for example, with their, from their mother, because that's the best way to get nutrients for children. And so one of the things that I worked on with a group of women is giving um, women who are incarcerated uh, the opportunity to breastfeed their children if they give birth while they are incarcerated. So that has worked. We've also worked on, on a domestic violence leave law, which allows women who are a part of a domestic violence situation and they want to leave it, so that they can have time off of work without fear of losing their jobs to make sure that they can go to court or, or put their children in a different school or even find a place to live. So that's been a part of my, my work, my journey, my helping individuals and communities of color. But now let's come forward to the coronavirus and what's happening now. And what I've found out is that, you know, during the coronavirus, the height of the coronavirus, people were losing their jobs and they didn't have a place to, uh, they didn't have, they didn't, they couldn't pay for their rent, for example. They couldn't pay for their electricity. So there were all these programs that were available, but people of color, for some reason, were not able to jump through these hoops that were these barriers, as I call them, that were there for people to be able to have access to funds to make sure that they were not evicted. Well, the other thing that happened, just so you know, is that the Supreme Court of New Mexico also put a, a, a moratorium on evictions and did not allow those evictions to occur. So, but you had to be able to pay 
to get that stress of knowing that, oh my gosh, how am I ever going to pay once this moratorium eviction is lifted? So what we did in a, a social justice law firm that I subsequently formed called KWH Law Center for Social Justice and Change is I uh, talked to individuals and found a way to get money to them to lift that stress and barrier off their lives so that they could know that they were living fine within their homes until they could get a job. Because even if the moratorium was lifted, that burden of having rent over their heads was no longer there. So I was extremely happy about making that happen. And then I will tell you about one last item and so that we stay within the time frame, even though we, was, we were late getting started here. I'll tell you about a couple of things that uh, through my journey, my work as a social justice attorney, I helped to start. It's something called See You Safe, and that's called Survivor Alliance for Financial uh, Empowerment. And why? what does that mean? So if you look at the state of New Mexico, and I've talked about domestic violence before, but we are one of the states that has one of the highest rates of domestic violence in the entire country. And so it was important to be able to help individuals, whether you were male or female, if you wanted to leave an abusive situation, how do you have the financial resources to do so if you have been relying upon a partner? So working with credit unions in the state of New Mexico, primarily U.S. Eagle Federal Credit Union, what we were able to start is something called See You Safe. And so that helps individuals have access to a line of credit up to $10,000 at 9.9% interest. Now I'll tell you why that's important because New Mexico is a state that has no cap on interest rates at all, other than what has just happened recently in the legislature where there is now a 36% cap on interest uh, for loans that do not exceed $5,000. So for those consumer loans, that is absolutely the place right now but that cap was just put in place during this legislative session. And, uh, but it's still a bill that has to be signed by the governor. Prior to that, it was 175%, which is huge. And before that, the cap on interest was no cap on interest. But with respect to the CU Safe program, we got credit unions to look at individuals who are leaving a domestic violence situation, but don't look at their credit scores. Just look at the fact that you need to help them help them have access to a line of credit, help them have access to homes, help them have access to automobiles, and help them to have access to additional education and schooling if they want it. So that program is in place right this moment. And then I want to just tell you about another program that actually is going on right now in Gallup, New Mexico, and it's called the Indigenous Women's Resource Council. So what, we, what I have done is working with a group I have worked with a group of Native American women to create this, this council. And the purpose of it is to help lift Native women. Domestic violence is some of the highest rates of domestic violence with, uh, it within the state occurs within the, domestic, within the Native American community. So the, this group gets together to talk about ways to help women. So this CU Safe program is one of those ways. And I will tell you something else that just happened on a bill that I argued before the, before the, um, in the legislature, it was a Senate Bill 12. And it said, 
you know, there are other ways that you need to help women, indigenous women. And what happens when there are missing or murdered women and relatives? And how does this affect families? So right now, there has been a bill that was argued in this legislative session that now will require the attorney general's office to have a division that's solely focused on looking at missing and murdered indigenous women and relatives. And I'm really excited about that. The signing for that bill will occur tomorrow at the Pueblo Indian Cultural Center right in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So working on that in connection with the Indigenous Women's Resource Council is another way in which I've been able to have an influence and to focus on social justice work. But now let's look at each and every one of you and what you're doing. And right now you're in school and you're studying and it's incredibly important that you stay there. And the reason is, is that the, the journey on education and learning is a never ending journey. You never know where it will take you. I will tell you as a sixth grader uh, sitting in my, in my elementary school, or as I said at Howard University or at the University of Texas School of Law, I had no idea I would ever be sitting in the New Mexico State Legislature, legislature as a House of Representative person representing a group of people from House District 28. So, but I can tell you that my reading, my consistent work, my learning, my never ending, ending journey in education has been a step that has led me in that direction. So I'm telling you the same thing. You don't know where your journey is gonna lead you. So never stop, never stop learning, never stop reading, but most of all, make sure that you are graduating from school. You're already here, so don't leave until you have that diploma in your hand. One of the things that you're gonna see that as you work together and as you, as you continue your journey, you're going to create collaborations with people like Dr. Okunar, who's on this call, and Dr. Lovett, who's on this call. And, and uh, there's uh, lots and lots of people. There's Miss Jessica Pino, so she's on this call. And so all of these individuals are people who you will ultimately have collaborations with. And you're gonna think about how can we come together and how can we work to change our communities for, for the better? And it's all because you decided to stay in school and to continue your education. So I want you to know, and one of the things that you can't see was a, was a slide with my email address and, and a telephone number. If you ever wanted to talk about a concept that you wanted to pursue that might help your community, the state, or something that you wanted to make sure that would help people to better their lives. and um, I'll find a way to get that to Dr. Lovett so that he can distribute it to, to all of you all so that at any point in time that you'd like to have that conversation, I would love to do that. So I think I've sped it up quickly enough so you will still end by three o'clock, but I promised Dr. Lovett I would leave time for some questions. So I am absolutely open for any questions that you would like to ask. Um, and I look forward to hearing from you. I'd like to thank you for giving a the presentation, especially in terms of what education as a whole means and how people can gather and how they can set the foundation for the rest of their lives. So before we get to question, I'd like to thank you very much for being here. Are there any questions uh, that you would like to ask Representative Herndon? So with none, uh, uh, Dr. Levin, maybe my, my presentation, even as condensed as I tried to make it, was too thorough. <laughs> 
Well, I think it was to the point and very clear. When we talk about uh, Black History Month and we're getting ready for a Women History Month next month. And some of the things that you talked about in terms of your work with women in general, you know, in terms of trying to provide more rights, trying to provide more pay. Uh, the MMID legislation, uh, that's important. And we were going to be talking about that next month. There was a group of women on our campus brought it up about two weeks ago that we should be doing something in reference to that. The other issue they brought up was safety. Women's safety on campus uh, and that there should be a safe zone or there should be something uh, done there. So those are some things next month that we're, we're going to talk about. So Dr. Lovett, so I didn't go to Prayer View. My mom and my dad did okay. and all my sisters did. I actually went to Howard University. And uh, so, but they might all be in the same conference. I'm not really sure, but I, it was, uh, it was, I, I sort of broke the tradition after my mom and dad graduated from Prairie View and okay. uh, all of my sisters went there. I uh, decided that Howard University was where I wanted to go. And I, needed, I felt like I needed to be in Washington, DC, which actually worked out, worked out to be really good. One of the things that I do want to share with you as you look at your Women's History Month program, and I hope that you will share it with, uh, with a lot of students, is that I've been working with a CNM, uh, Central New Mexico uh, Community College. And on March 18th, we're gonna have the first ever Women's Trades Conference right in the state of New Mexico. And so in the state right now, we have a shortage of skilled workers like uh, electricians, machinists, uh, construction workers. And those, those, those jobs tend to pay something as high as $36.16 an hour. So why can't women do that? So we're focusing on doing a women's trades conference that's gonna be held right on that campus. And uh, we're gonna have something called speed, uh, we can call it speed dating trading, uh, for lack of another word, so that you can go to all the trades and have a conversation with a woman who's in that trade right now, including firefighting. There's a woman by the name of Janessa Ruiz, who's going to be present, and she is looking for more and more women to be firefighters. So these are jobs that women don't normally hold because they don't think about them. But we want, we want women to know that these positions are absolutely available to you. And then how do we make them available also through apprenticeship programs? So uh, there's no better time that we thought to launch that program rather than during Women's History Month. So I hope that you'll share that with many of you, the um, wonderful people who are at the at UNM Gallup campus and tell them yes. to come down and be a part of that. I will share the information. And also we'd like to thank Dr. O'Connors and his uh, foundation, African American, and it's a part of the Charlie Wolversey Foundation, but uh, he is also a sponsor of this, this function. So we'd like to thank him for his help. And uh, he was one that asked me to get in contact with you. Well, I really appreciate it. Dr. Kuna is one of the smartest men in the world that I know of. Next to you, Dr. Lovett. And so it's yeah, always a pleasure you. working with Dr. Kuna. He always has great ideas and a, and a vision that is beyond doubt. So uh, thank you very much for the invitation. It has been wonderful being here, despite the technology. But I want you to know that um, on, on last week, as a part of uh, uh, Black History Month, I'll just share this with you quickly before we the three o'clock period, 
is I do a a program called Women's Focus on KUNM Radio, which is the NPR, National Public Radio affiliate in New Mexico. And so I was focusing on what what else are Black people looking for as we look forward to 2022? And one Mm -hmm. of the things that is about to happen is there's going to be the first African-American woman to be appointed to the Supreme Court in the history of this country. We don't know who that's gonna be, but by February 28th, if not before, the announcement is gonna be made as to who that woman is going to be. And I will also tell you that if I look at New Mexico and the over 100 year history of this country, of this state rather, there has never been an African-American sitting on the Supreme Court in the state of New Mexico. So that now needs to be a focus of what we're working on. We just got two years ago, the first African-American to sit on the Court of Appeals. Her name is Judge Shamara Henderson. So she sits there now. But, you know, even as we look at Native Americans, we look at other people of color, why aren't these voices being heard? So we need to make sure that we're, we're moving forward with a plan that's intentional and in making sure that all voices are part of our court system and our justice system to make sure that cultural diversity is a part of the decisions that are being made. Well, we'd like to thank you, and we're right on the time. Dr. O'Connor, you, would you like to say a word? I thank her very much, and we we'll want to have her one more time when there is an in-person so that we can have these face-to-face conversations and questions and answers. So uh, my utmost appreciation for your presence, and thank you very much. Well, thank you again for the invitation. It has been wonderful to be, in, to be here. Thank you. You have been listening to a Black History Month celebration hosted by UNM Gallup and featuring Representative Pamela Herndon of District 28 in Bernalillo County, including Albuquerque. This virtual presentation was sponsored by the UNM Gallup Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, moderated by L.D. Lovett, Director, and Dr. Okanor of the Charlie Morrissey Foundation.